Hello, I'm Stephanie Luor. Welcome to my podcast, Surface Time: Confessions of a Diving Junkie, where I chinwag with people who are like me, scuba diver and chronic addicts to being underwater. During the surface time today, I spoke with Carolina Isberg, a psychotherapist by trade, a creative soul. You may recall from the episode with Magnus Ekblomvika, where we spoke about one of his editorial photos: a diver holding a bunch of balloons in the cenote, Mexico. Oh well, Carolina, what that diver? My curiosity had to hear from her side of story. Her personal experiences in that creative process. Hi, I'm good, thank you. I'm so happy that we are so coordinated,、uh, color coordinated with our art. Ah, <laughs> oh yes, color of the ocean. Yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> that is so cool. <laughs> so, before we get to the first question, I want to know about the art behind you because that looks beautiful. Swedish artist called、uh, Henrik Allet. I don't know so much about him, but it's like two faces. You see one very clearly, and the what other one is a little more in the shade. I don't know anything about it, but I like it very much. Ah,、uh, lovely! It's a nice color. I, I like it. There is almost a sense, but that is also face watching that direction. So there is. I think you can find more if you look closely. Yeah, I love painting where you can actually just keep looking at it and then keep finding new details.、Mm. As I said, it's almost a finding a different perspective in life. Yeah. Okay, let's get back to diving. We digressed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I start with a classic question: Where was your last memorable dive? My last memorable dive. The thing is. It will always be back to the cenotes in Mexico, even though I have been diving since. But I've done three trips to Mexico and diving their freshwater caves or caverns, and they always strike me with awe. <laughs> That's the thing. So one of the last dives was in this big, almost like a big cathedral, was just a little hole on the top. And we went down, and the sun came in like a spotlight down in this enormous hall, and we were diving in that and just exploring it. That's a memorable dive for sure. It actually painted a very vivid image for me because it just felt to say you're in this vast space、mm. in the cenote, and then you have light coming from the top. Mm. And you said we're just there to explore. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's really mildly. Yeah, I think it's a vast space, so there must be a lot more than what you're alluding to right now. Yes, and the thing is with those spaces that I think it is about dark and light. It's darkness and it's light coming in, and you don't appreciate the light until you see the light from the darkness. So there is something with those contrasts between light and darkness that is really, really astonishing. And I think it's almost like a play. It's almost like a scenery.、Uh, I think that is what strikes me the most. That is what have 
also stayed with me. So you said the contrasting dark and lights, right? And would this also be fair to say that it's so vast, so it's awesome that you're in awe of the surroundings, and yet it's very daunting. Mm. There is a contrasting like emotion all happening at the same time. I think so. It feels maybe a little silly to say it, but when I'm in that, I get the sense that everything, yeah, that everything makes sense. I have an experience that life makes sense. And I think it is because it's daunting and quite easy. I am lightweighted in neutral buoyancy in this underwater cathedral. On the other hand, it's also, of course, a little somehow scary because it's just a tiny hole. And how am I supposed to get out of this great space? So I'm lighthearted and still quite a sense of depth of life. Wow. Is that the same cenote where you had the picture taken where you were the model holding a bunch of balloon under the water? It is the same as space. And I also listened to that podcast you recorded with my ex-husband Magnus and he was taking the pictures and I was sitting around with balloons. I wasn't floating around. <laughs> I was really focusing because it's difficult to swim with balloons. They are bringing you up. Yeah, I know. It's interesting. I mean, okay, let's not draw too much into the technical aspect. We've gone through that with Magnus. I think you two were in the creative process in the same journey, but you have a different interpretation and your side of story would be quite different. So I'm curious to hear your side of story. What was like when you were working as part of the creative process? Yeah, for me, I have been quite interested in putting very human situations like life on land underwater. There has been quite a lot of commercial photos with people sitting like in an office, but underwater. There has been quite a lot of those kind of pictures. And I, I really enjoy those. And I had seen quite a few free diving pictures from the Cenotis as well. And I had been thinking about that quite a lot and we were speaking about it a lot. And when we came back the second time, the last dive or one of the last dives that we did was uh, down in a cenote called Angeli uh, Angelita. And it's branches there, branches that has fallen down through the cenote. So it becomes this mysterious place. And we were then started talking about what happens if I just sit on the tree branch. And I will now correct myself because there is nothing like just sitting on a tree branch underwater. It was so difficult. So the guy just helped me kind of arrange legs and arms because I was just like, what is this? What is happening? And I was sitting there and we were kind of playing with these postures. Am I longing for life up there or am I just a person sitting here when someone is swimming by? What is this? So we were playing with those expression and didn't plan it that much, just plan it a little. So next time when we went back 
to this notice. We had been discussing this of taking more creative pictures. And then I was like, what about bringing props down there? Could we bring some balloons? Could we bring some, like a parasol? I think you have seen that picture as well. Yeah. When I am Mary Poppins swimming with a parasol underwater. So we did that. And I think for me, it's so easy to imagine these things where life on earth, life on land is placed underwater. And what would that be? So we did that and Magnus is the technical person and you went through his process of it and the photos and all of it and how we had to arrange it. But uh, I just liked to be there and kind of modeling and really pretending swimming with these balloons because it really adds to the experience. It really felt real as if I was flying with balloons. At the same time, it's hard work because it's so difficult to keep the references with a buoyancy underwater while always looking up. Because when you look up, you float up. So the guide was kind of trying to help me with the references outside the picture. And we were taking quite a lot of them just to make sure something, something <laughs> <laughs> looked composed enough. My creativity. I think is a lot about that. What happens if we add environments to each other, the underwater environment with the on-land environment. And when I started diving uh, in the cenotes, I was thinking a lot about Alice in Wonderland, the story of this girl who falls into a hole and then falls down and down and down and down. And then she comes to Underland or Wonderland. Alice in Wonderland, it's Underland in Swedish, Wonderland, sorry. And I had those feelings when we were doing this. This is exactly like Alice in Wonderland. And we were joking a lot about the guide being the white rabbit showing our way, and me being Alice and Magnus being the Mad Hatter. And this was like a joke we were having together. So when we were swimming down with these balloons and the guide swam with the balloons and the torch and just tried to help us down with all the equipment, I was like, this is, this is seriously the craziest thing I've done in my life. Why is this guide swimming with a bouquet of balloons down this place where almost no people have been? And it's also historically sacred place with these cenotes. So it felt like this like just a very, very deep sense of, yeah, awe and deep sense of holiness, I think, in the middle of all of it. And I was thinking a lot of Alice in Wonderland. So what I did was that I used Magnus' pictures and then I kind of combined that with my own story of Alice in Wonderland and how we went to a tea party underwater. And we were flying with the balloons and flying with the, the umbrella. And that is how I interpret it in the end. I make something more of it. I make something that isn't real. And I kind of like that part of creativity bringing you out of reality into a fantasy world, but then also back to reality with a new take on reality. So what's your take on the, the reality after you came back? from that cenote experience because it can be overwhelming 
but then you you use a different way to expressing your experience, like going down, like Alan's going down the Wonderland, and you came back down, and you were totally aware of it. But I think it's your expression of that overwhelming sensation. So now you're back to reality. What's your take home now? I remember when I came back first time, I felt so empty. I just hold on to these pictures and those memories and what I had written about it and read it over and over again to just kind of make something of it. But right now, my take on reality after coming back to reality, <laughs> it's really that everything contains much more than we can see. That every situation, every relationship, every contact with another person, with a group, with a setting. And I'm speaking about this like really ordinary everyday things. Everything contains much more than we can see. That also goes hand in hand with my own profession. I'm a psychologist. I work with therapy and psychotherapy and I'm really interested in psychoanalytical theory. So this also goes hand in hand with that. I know that there is an unconscious world, but it's difficult to explain that world. It's difficult to fully explore that world. But the experience from diving the Cenotes actually helped me to just mm -hmm. accept the fact that there is so much more to the everyday reality than we can believe. If we kind of continue on with the cycle analysis, right? They obviously most of the time we operate with our conscious mind. So we don't know too much about subconscious and unconscious mind. But from the neuroscience perspective, a lot of studies being done. So we know that when this comes to manifestation, our subconscious mind and unconscious mind are actually very active. But then it's just how we access them in a different way. So some people explore using meditations and others through different kind of experiential learning. And so if we use diving as a form of experiential learning, so effectively, like the maximum you can do on single turn, probably an hour dive. You That's a perfect session. That's a perfect therapy session. <laughs> 45 minutes. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry I interrupted you. Continue. No, no, no. That was perfect cue. So how would you describe it? Okay, we kind of blur in between the reality and transferable experiences because they are transferable. And it's almost that we superimpose what we have from diving into life, real life, what we do on land and vice versa. So if we use diving analogy, how would you articulate it or express it as a psychotherapist? Yeah, I see it exactly like that, that one dive is a symbol of how we approach life in very many ways. And one way of viewing it is like this free-floating attention. That is actually the name of it when you speak about therapy. That is the attention we do have that is directed very widely. So you don't direct it specifically on one thing. It's not specifically on one behavior, one story, one feeling. It's a, a very wide perspective on a person's 
story or on the conversation you do have with a person where you are making yourself open to all the different impulses that comes. And I think that free-floating attention is exactly what we do have when we dive, when we are comfortable enough. So diving is a lot about technique. It's a lot about theory. It's a lot about risk management. We need to learn to know our own equipment, how to stay neutral buoyant, how to read the gauges, how to plan for a dive. When all of these things are on place, when we are prepared enough to do a very normal dive, we can also let that attention float while diving. And uh, that means that we will both notice a box fish in the corner of the reef and direct our full attention to that box fish. Well, not too, too focused because then the box fish becomes very scared and will hide. <laughs> but yeah, we will see that box fish, but we will also see uh, a few sharks kind of patrolling the reef a few meters out. And we will also have a feeling of where our body is. So we know that he or she is safe. We will be in this very wide presence of what we are doing. And then our conscious memories, our experience here and now can float around. I sometimes, when I dive, start thinking about kind of childhood memories or certain things I start to remember, but I never get upset or worried or anything. It's just being there, floating around, and I can notice it. But as soon as something happens, like a strong current coming against me or the current changing direction or this waving in a way where I see a distress, then I'm suddenly very focused. So I do think that allowing yourself being both having this theoretical base and all the uh, experience and knowledge, if you can kind of have that within you in a very secure way. You can also allow yourself to just rely that those things are in place and you will be able to just relax. And in that relaxation, then you can also notice new things, both about the world, but also about yourself. I like that analogy. And I think it's also a good analogy that you can use it to describe what meditation is. What you just described, very similar to meditation practice, you are aware of what's going on. It's all about being aware of what's going on, but not completely focusing on one thing, because in that state of meditation, you need to allow your mind to float. But then at the same time, you're aware of what's going on. The more center you stay within yourself, the more information that comes to light to you and also the important information that needs your attention will jump at you rather than you searching for the information. Yeah. I think that's probably the closest explanation is how you tap into the subconscious and unconscious mind. Yeah. If we talk about how we work with that in therapy, it's very linked to, for example, dreams or when you kind of collide with reality in different ways. 
So the upsetness that comes from the therapist ending the session, for example, the time is, is up and the therapist is ending the session and the feelings that comes from that kind of collision with reality, that is usually where the unconscious makes itself known. So to be able to reach it, you can, of course, do that through different modalities. But I think that what we do when we dive and what I kind of realized in the Sonatas is that it's so clear that there is an unconscious. We cannot negotiate that away. And that is actually the, the most important insight because the less we try to fight it, just the existence of it, the easier it is. Yeah, it's fascinating. So I find people who scuba dive regularly, they somehow have a much stronger resilience to deal with the challenges in life. And I think scuba diving is probably one of the best antidotes to depression. Mm -hmm. How do you relate those things? I do find that you go into the water, you just let your minds open, your hearts open. So I do find that when I am stressed or when I feel trapped, so like when I feel like I needed to do something different because I feel a bit bogged down or having the mental or creativity block, I just go down to the water. And, and it's different from going swimming. Going underwater is different because somehow the physical sensation of going high pressure environment and come back up it kind of squeeze out the stress or rebalance realign my body so i would go down to the water come back out say yeah whatever bother me there's a matter my brain start to open my creativity start to flow and uh, yeah whatever that may be considered as a negative emotion or feeling upset and that just disappeared so for me, I'll probably call it a stress management strategy. I think this is so interesting. And I was thinking, are resilient people more interested in diving or do people become resilient by going diving? That's also a question, of course. However, I do also think that we do, of course, develop resilience while we're doing advanced activities. I think you are onto something here. You can start a research based on this because I think you have a point. What I am thinking is that it is this combination of uh, being on the one hand very focused and secure within the theory and practice of it and on the other hand being this free-floating focus or free-floating attention. And I think when you have those in place, you don't get into these dwelling thoughts. I think that is similar. Well, now we are speaking about diving, but I think that is similar to hiking, for example. You fill your day with these activities that is about food, sleep, Becoming warm, becoming dry, hide from the storm, hide from the rain, finding a sheltered place for your tent, all of that. Together with this free-floating attention, maybe you have mountains, maybe you have big fields. You need to have a focus on where to put your feet so you don't lose your balance. But at the same time, you're very focused on the scenery. 
And when you are in that state, I, it's almost like you're very close to meaningfulness in those situations. When we can reach those situations, we can also reach maybe kind of new levels of ourselves, our creativity, our sense of maybe freedom, our sense of being connected to ourselves, and also a sense of being connected to life maybe. That sounds very spiritual from my perspective, but I think that those things are connected. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that 45 minutes is at the best length of time for the therapy session. Yeah. Yeah. You, right. So going back to the analogy of how we go diving, how would you draw that analogy in the comparative manner from a psychotherapy perspective and then how that can be then superimposed into life experiences? So if I use this analogy, I would say that the session ends where the safety stop starts. I would say that the safety stop is when the client comes out in the waiting room again and slowly put on the shoes, take the coat, maybe go to the bathroom, dry their tears or wipe their tears, going out to the fresh air and kind of start to more consciously maybe thinking of what just happened in there. And I think that is actually how I use the safety stop because when I reach the safety stop, I start uh, playing quite a lot. My diving becomes something else, quality changes, and I go into more of, okay, I keep myself here at the five meters, but you know, you can spin a little, you can see, oh, what's here, what's happening here, and play around a little. And I am not in this state of free-floating attention or leaning on my knowledge because I know that everything is safe somehow. I'm just five meters down. I need to stay here for three minutes in the big scheme of things. Okay. Which means that when it comes to therapy, you start the diving, you descend into the topics you have that is on top of your mind and you start there and you don't fully know where the session will end. But when you reach five meter, the session is over. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. Play it in your safety stops. Yes, do you do other things? Oh, yeah. They're, they're, it's kind of, yeah, I'm going home, but um, I'm not ready to go home yet. I, I'm going to play, play a bit more. I'm not done yet. Exactly. So there is the safety stop is some kind of tr transition time between the session and reality. There is a window where you can slowly uh, transit between these two states of existence. It's a way of viewing it. I think that's actually quite in interesting and it's quite important. I'm just thinking in terms of like in corporate, probably also relevant to you because maybe on your busy day, you may have like eight appointments back to back. And not all of them are related, actually, they probably are not related to each other, that you have to switch your mind instantly. What would be your quick fix when you need to transit yourself from one session to the next? Because you may only have, say, five minutes. Yeah. I usually do the same thing. I open the window, I refill my water glass, 
And uh, usually I write the case notes very quickly. And then I do a quick scroll on Instagram because I like to have pictures. So I kind of do that transit by viewing other people's pictures. I follow quite a lot of nature photographers, interior design photographers. I usually have my Instagram feed filled with quite beautiful pictures of different things. Kind of cleanse <laughs> my brain with that. And then I'm happy to open the door for the next person. So that's my safety stop when I work. It's just very interesting chat. I, I think we can go on for another 24 hours. I want to ask you some questions that I ask yep. all my guests. So we'll start with the first one, diving related. What are your three top tips on safe diving practice? Number one, don't dive alone. And preferably, preferably dive with someone that you do trust. Mm. Number two, make sure you know your equipment. Even if you rent it, you need to know it. You need to try it. You need to put on the air. You need to kind of know your equipment. Because when you're down there, well, you can blame the dive center, but it's too late to blame the dive center. Yeah, it's actually really important because your life really depends on it. Um, we, we go into a complete unnatural environment for our body. Now, our body is not built to swim and then breathe underwater. So, yeah, it, it's very important top tip. Mm. And the third one is uh, don't push your limits. That's maybe a bit boring to say that, but I really think it's so easy to convince yourself, oh, this headache will soon pass. I will soon feel better. I will soon be more comfortable. But if you feel uncomfortable, if you feel uneasy, if you're seeing on your gauge, you can notice uh, that the air is actually getting too low. You need to stop diving and there will be more dives. There is mm. always more situations that will common more dive sites that you can experience don't push your limits on this specific dive it's unnecessary it I took I, maybe I, 300 dives to get there really yeah i have really been a person's like yeah i will never get back through this place i need to really enjoy it but it doesn't feel yeah i really <laughs> i need to enjoy this now so for that 300 dive, you were convincing yourself to suck it up and get on with your discomfort and don't be a princess. I think it's really important, going back to your first tip, you really need to have a dive body where before you go diving, you agree on the key principle that we will exit when you feel uncomfortable. I almost say you need to confirm that understanding that Everybody has the right to call off the dive early simply because you're not feeling comfortable, then do that. And you need to remind each other that you've given the consent for the other person to call the dive mm. and you're not going to be upset. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's, it's so important, but it's also a bit difficult. Yeah, it can be difficult because especially if you're diving somewhere, you don't know when you're going to go back again. Right. That's also reflecting on the real life scenario. This. Think about how many times that we 
then really voice out our discomfort and we just bottle it up. And then I, either we try to process it if we're mature enough or we bottle it up until we explore. I think that this is a difficult topic. I would say psychologically that we have to be aware of our tendencies. So for a person who has a tendency, always feel like, oh, I'm so tired. Oh, I feel really, really stressed now. Or I feel like pressure here on my chest or, oh, isn't my head hurting? If you have a tendency being overly aware of your physical sensations all the time, it's good to learn to be a little resilient towards them and learn to, oh, it's okay. I'll see if it gets worse. But if you are a person who tends to kind of, no, no, everything is going to be fine, which I think that I have a tendency to doing when it comes to, for example, diving or those kinds of things. I have other things I wouldn't deny or negotiate away, but those things I tend to because it feels like such a precious moment and I cannot ruin this for me or the other person by complaining or by ending the dive. So have to be aware of your own tendency. It also helps to dive a lot. If you dive a lot, you also know that you will always see a reef again. You can always come back. If you dive very occasionally, it's much more difficult. It's true, actually. That's actually a good comparison. Thanks for that. The next question. Yeah. Outside scuba diving, what do you do to maintain your own well-being? I do sing. I sing a lot. I sing in a choir. Oh, yeah. Music therapy. (laughs) Yeah, it's music therapy. It's also a good social setting where I kind of belong and I have a good time. So it's very good, both the singing and the social setting of being a part of a choir. But I'm also outdoors a lot. I hike, I, I camp, I do those things, bicycle a lot even though it's usually in the city. I like to be outdoors, and that's a good way taking care of my own actually mental well-being in many ways. I also enjoy art, art exhibitions, and I like to go to the theater, and I like to go to photo exhibitions and art exhibitions in different ways. So yeah, constantly allowing yourself to be stimulated. Mm. Like, Constantly put yourself in the, what was this term again? The floaty mind. Yeah, uh, the free-floating attention. The free-floating attention, yeah. That's actually very useful. And so curious, you say earlier that you sing in the choir. So what does that make you feel to each time you've been to a choir practice session or when you actually do the performance? I think that it's in many ways very similar to what we have been speaking about when it comes to diving or hiking, for example, that it allows me a few hours of full presence where I am. I don't think in detail about the rest of my life. I don't plan my dinner. I don't plan a next vacation. I don't try to sort out things in my head it doesn't mean that I don't think about other things but I have this I need to be focused on the music and I need to be focused on my peers so I am in tuned 
And I need to kind of be oriented where I am within the choir and the music. On the other hand, I also have this wider sense of something is coming into my mind. I think about something during the day or I think about something tomorrow. It's different things. The free-floating attention again, but it's very based on what is happening in the choir. But I think mm -hmm. it is the combination and that is exactly what makes me kind of heal and rest. That is to do things, to be refilled with inputs with creative impulses, all these things together with allowing myself to still reflect in a very daydreamish way. It's mm -hmm. almost like a daydream, isn't it? When it's floating yeah. like that. Yeah. But also when you do it in a group, so you have this collective energy vibe. Mm -hmm. And do you find that they actually feel you up so that you kind of can draw the energy from everyone around you, but it's a really nice flows and exchange of energy. Yeah, it is. And um, if we are doing a performance, I remember when we sang Mozart's Requiem like a year ago, it's one of those big crescendos and everyone is so focused doing the same thing at the same time. And that is like... Those experiences, being in a group, creating things that are so much grander than every single person could do by themselves. That's like, yeah, I don't have words for that. <laughs> but you have the uh, tingling sensation on your skin. Yeah, I did. I did. I felt those when I told you. <laughs> I'm feeling it as well. That's why. Oh, thank you. Um, okay, next question. Yeah. What advice would you give to your 18-year-old self? That was, that's a hard one, actually. But I think I would say to my 18-year-old self that, you know, you will be able to trust your own decisions to a much greater extent than you believe. What makes you say that? Because I think those years, like the late teenage years they were so filled with knowing that adult life would soon come and a wish to be kind of free and make your own decisions at the same time that I felt quite anxious about whether those decisions were the right ones how does one know I mean younger teenage years I was more like into or more of anxiety and low mood level and worried about things. But I think these late teenage years, they were for me much about making decisions, finding a direction in life. And I can see that I knew a lot about myself. I didn't know so much about life, of course, and I have realized loads since, but there is a core sense of actually me knowing, I already knew then that I wanted to become a psychologist. And I mean, it's the best decision I've ever made. That's lovely. I think that's a beautifully put. Next question. Mm -hmm. What is one life-changing experience that you can think of now? I would say that I moved to Singapore together with my ex-husband, I think. It is 11 years ago. And... It was the first time in my life I'd traveled loads, but never been living abroad. 
And that was a huge decision for me because I didn't know whether I could work or what would happen. And to then invent my life from scratch as an adult was such a big experience. It was fun. It was challenging. It was like everything from everyday life to actually yeah. find a way working. And I did work in mm -hmm. Singapore and it worked out well. And it was really an adventure being there for those five years. So I'm so happy about it. But I must say it started with just waking up the first morning like, oh, what do I do now? Uh, maybe I start with breakfast. Yeah, breakfast is good. How do I find breakfast? I start there. And then what do I do now? Maybe I should, I could exercise a little. And then, yeah, I will go out and see the city a little. And I just kind of created my own life from scratch. And that was a good experience, knowing that I can do that, that I could start my life over wherever. That's interesting, actually. So, you know, you came in because Magnus moved for the work, right? Yeah. So he had a job. And you came without a job. And all of a sudden you say, oh, I don't have a job to go to, but what do I do to make my days interesting or make yeah. myself useful or make me feel I'm useful for the day? Exactly. Exactly. How do I end this day feeling that it was at least a little meaningful to me or somebody else? Yeah. It's good. Empty space in your life to be able to do that because... Sometimes we do need to switch off and then change land and then just to experience what's like on the slower land. Because that was literally you move from fast land to slow land. So looking back, what changes that you've seen five years living in Singapore and that you're doing a difference here now? What changes I brought from Singapore, you mean? Or Yeah, yeah. I think it was a good experience for me noticing that I could create a new social network for myself and I did that quite easily I mean I am back in the city where I grew up so I have friends and family of course from yeah. my early years and from school years but I've yeah. also created new groups of friends since I moved back and I yeah. have realized that I enjoy that some people keep their same group of friends the whole life and they feel that consistency is very important to them. I mm -hmm. think that I want to have a few friends, of course, from my history, but I have also the experience that my life changes and I change in different phases of my life and I like to add more people into my mm -hmm. life. Just having that experience has been an important one. I think I've been a bit faster in just trying things. I brought that from Singapore because since I was in that empty space, I just had to try things and I didn't lose anything by trying them. So what I did when I moved back was that I started my own company and my own private practice. And I think that was both because I was in a transit where I didn't have a job in Sweden. So I could try my own company out to see if it did work and it did. You have been listening to Surface Time, Confessions of a Diving Junkie. My guest today was Carolina Isberg. That was a mind-opening dialogue about creativity, power of imagination, being the state of free-floating attention. If diving 
is a form of experiential learning. I love the way she has put it. One die is a symbol of how we approach life in many ways. In essence, it is all about being present in the moment, allowing yourself to process and filter information, and refining the narrative of your life. For every dive, we do a safety stop before we surface. Depending on your dive profile, it is normally about three minutes in the range of five to three meters depth. This is an important transition period. On the one hand, we will be savoring the last moment of the dive. On the other hand, we're getting ready to return to land. The same ritual can be applied in other aspects of life. So when would you take your safety stop? And what would you do during that safety stop? Surface Time is executively produced by Noetic Production and Music by Dress Studio. If you have enjoyed our Surface Time chat, please show us some love and subscribe. And even better, share with your friends and family so that they get to be inspired. And if you would like to share your stories on Surface Time, we would love to hear from you. Please email us to faith at servicetimechats.com.